I am so delighted to be here today with Margaret Allen, the author of Gracious Living, Creating a Culture of Honor, Love, and Compassion. And uh, Margaret is also planning in the near future to start a YouTube channel, so I thought this might be a good opportunity to get to know her. And uh, what we like to do here on The Meaning Code, Margaret, is to kind of start out with your life. So I wondered if maybe you could tell me about what it was like to grow up being Margaret. <laughs> you know, uh, What was your family like, um, your educational background and things like that? Awesome. Well, Karen, thank you for having me on your show. I appreciate that. And um, I'm excited to see what's going to happen today. Um, so I grew up in Houston. Um, my dad was a biochemist, a researcher. Um, my mom worked in the lab as well. And um, I thought it was a pretty typical upbringing. Um, you know, you think that when you're young and then you... <laughs> you find out not everybody's living like your family. I guess we all have kind of our own peculiar bent on things. But my folks were, I think, approached things from a scientific place. And um, I would say academics were the most important thing. My parents were not um, religious at all. They were atheists. And it wasn't really a passive uh, you know, thing in our house. It was something I was really taught, um, mm -hmm. atheism, that there is no such thing as God and, you know, really like mentally inferior people are those that are religious and, you know, that kind of, uh, snobbishness. So that's how I was brought up. And, uh, funny thing, I'm, you know, several things caused me to question that and to just find that 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 wasn't a fulfilling viewpoint. Um, one, my mom uh, got breast cancer when I was in like sixth grade, so about 12. And I remember being very frightened. And even though I'd been taught there's no such thing as God, uh, I still remember praying and just saying, God, if you exist, you know, help uh, my mother. And that that was a very powerful experience. Um, kind of along with that, I had someone, I had a science teacher who probably in 10th grade who had to teach evolution. And she came out in front of her desk and crossed her arms. And she said, I have to teach you that. But I'm here to say, I believe there is a God who made you. And I laughed out loud and ridiculed that and had a lot of experiences like that in Texas. You know, you're going to be around uh, religious people and pushed back all the time. Finally, a girl came to my door. Uh, as part of a Baptist church that had gotten all the names of our high school students and addresses and was delivering a New Testament to everyone's door. And this girl came to my door and handed me a New Testament. And I laughed at her and I said, oh, my God, you don't believe this crap, do you? And you know, I was just horrible. <laughs> and I'm sure she went home and cried. But uh, I took it and I read it. And it 
absolutely made sense to me and it made beauty uh to me it, it brought all the pieces together of what i felt lacking in atheism um now this was your in 10th grade at this point i was 16 i was in 10th okay. grade and i think because my mom having cancer that had brought me to more sober questions in life i think for that age but i remember reading uh gosh um, Ephesians two talks about, you know, you're lost in your sin, you're alienated from God. And then it says, but God, but God being rich in mercy, you know, has redeemed you. It's, it's by through faith, by grace that you're saved and not a result of yourself. So I remember reading that and just going, Man, and, and John 10, 10, you know, I came to give you life to the full. The devil comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus said, I came to give you life in an abundant way. And I distinctly remember thinking abundant, you know, I see my dad get up, go to work, come home, have dinner, go to bed, get up, go to work, come home, have dinner, go to bed. And he says that life ceases to exist at death and that we're merely an organism and this what is all of this for it made no sense to me and when i saw jesus saying you can have a life that is full and rich and abounding i was all over that i i was like count me in so i became born again radically saved uh, I was driving a Dukes a Hazard car in high school, and I put a Jesus sticker on that car. And <laughs> you know, my parents were just mortified. <laughs> but I was, I was all in. I would pick up hitchhikers to hand them a New Testament and talk to them about Jesus, and um, it was just, it was full send, and. You know, that's what, 44 years ago. And I still feel that I'm catching up on what I missed out on of being raised in faith and having that imprinted in your DNA from a young age. Uh, I still feel like I'm catching up. I still feel that I circle back and have some of the same questions. And I still am full send. Like I'm all in. I think the greatest thing about my life and about my family is that we really dig Jesus and he digs us. And it's just an adventure. Well, so I, I'm, just to clarify, I'm not familiar with that term, full send? Is that send, S-E-N-D. And what does um, that mean, full send? Maybe that's a skiing, snowboarding phrase. Oh, yeah, um, maybe, because I, I don't know anything about that world. You, it's whatever you're going to do, just kind of like huck and pray, like jump and, and pray it works out, like <laughs> go all out. Um, don't hold back. Don't be measured and calculating and 
um, unnecessarily cautious, let's say. So it's, it's jump in with your whole heart, your whole mind. Um, oh, that's a great, that's a great phrase. I'm going to have to remember that. <laughs> I'll, I'll get you a sticker. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you mentioned your family. Um, so how did you meet your husband? Oh, what a great God story. Um, I moved, so I grew up in Houston when I went to college in Oklahoma, I was involved in a campus ministry and I just thought, man, if I could do anything in the world, it would be to be on a college campus and having spiritual discussions. And so I became a campus minister in Houston. I brought a group of kids from Houston to California and I totally had an experience of feeling like I'd just come home. And I never loved Texas um, in ways back then. I felt like it was just, you know, I struggled with the racism, sexism, the role of religion in society, you know, like there's, there were more more Baptists than there were people, you know, like everybody says they go to church and believe in God and that kind of thing, but, but it's not necessarily genuine. And I really wanted to be in a genuine environment. So I came to California and it was like coming home. No one here claimed to be a Christian, you know, either you are, or you aren't, but nobody's pretending here. And I found that very uh, attractive. So I For people who aren't from California, you might want to say why it is that nobody pretends in California. Well, yeah, you tell me why <laughs> it's it's not cool for sure. Well, I think that's it. I mean, it's so not cool to be a Christian in California, and and uh, so yeah, it gets real really fast. It yeah. does, yeah. which I love. Yeah. I love that. Um, I like to know exactly where I stand with people. So no pretending, no pretense. Yeah, I think I noticed that when I when I came back from Japan, I was a missionary in Japan for three years. And when I came back from Japan into a, a church in the United States, it was so disorienting at first because in Japan, nobody has any reason to talk about Jesus unless they're all in. <laughs> and and when, and so when you do have conversations, they're deep and meaningful and, you know, and you have a purpose and all of that. And you come back into the church and they're all doing life and, you know, they're lovely people, but there's no, there's no intentionality there, you know, and, and, yes. and, a lot of what passes for fellowship is, oh, where are you working now? And, oh, have you changed roommates? And, you yes. know, and uh, it, it was very disorienting. Yes. So so then I moved to California and didn't know anybody here. And so I had, you know, I jumped into a church not knowing anybody. But in California, it's quite different. People in church are actually um, full send. <laughs> <laughs> We'll have to title this podcast, Full Santa. That's good. 
And I, I have a feeling, Karen, that things are really changing right now in church landscape. And I think that people are searching for a much more authentic, personal, gentle experience. Um, I, I, I recently was talking with my daughter who is new back to the Bay Area and, and I was asking her what she's looking for in a church. And she said, I wanna find a pastor who's really humble and gentle. And my first thought was, well, good luck, little girl. <laughs> good luck finding that. You know, that's not necessarily what um, many of our churches are about. And then, you know, walking into church that's, you know, you feel like you need earplugs. I had another young woman under 30 say to me, she felt like she needed to wear earplugs at church because it's so loud. And, you know, I go to a, a large church and the lights are flashing and the, you know, the drums are crashing and we're dancing and it's a big, loud experience. And sometimes I'm just like, whoa, you know. Well, it's so easy. She talks about wanting to find a humble, gentle pastor. I, It's too bad you're not still living in Houston because just north of Houston, there's a little town with uh, Father John, who's been on my podcast and my on my YouTube a few times. We, we started doing a series through the book Piranesi, but he's a, he is a, church planter in this little town north of Houston and he's with the Anglican church he's an Anglican priest and wow he's exactly what your daughter would be looking for in a pastor and my, me too that's exactly what I'd be looking for in a pastor yeah. unfortunately you know north of Houston is not I'm not likely to get there anytime soon but it did make me think I would like to look around here for an Anglican liturgical church I think that's that's what I'm really hungry for because I've had my years and years of the big pop and flash and loud music and drums and all that kind of stuff. And, and I think there's a place for that in the celebration of things, but, but uh, I'm certainly looking for something more right now. Well, and I, well, I think it's representative. I think many of us are looking and, you know, it's interesting. Francis Chan, I think is starting uh, more like house churches in the Bay area you know, that may be of some kind of interest. Um, I I love the church my son has found in Waco, Texas, where he's at Baylor and he's a part of Antioch, which is a very missional church. And there's very much a purpose and an identity mm -hmm. um, that I am so thrilled for him to have and to find that. That's really cool. So that's so, kind of a, that was a side note, but. Yeah, I was going to say we were on the path of finding out how you met your husband. How did I meet my cute husband? Well, um, so when I moved to California as a campus minister at Stanford, I uh, originally came here through the sponsorship of Southern Baptists. And so part of that sponsorship was that I was required and accountable to every Southern Baptist pastor in the Bay Area. And I had to meet with them every week. So we would meet at Coco's 
uh, pancake breakfast place every week for lunch. And it was me and about 30 old white pastors. And, you know, <laughs> torture. But I went to this meeting once I had just met with a mentor who said, you know, you really need to recruit volunteers to work with you at Stanford. You can't raise enough support to hire people, but it'd be great if you could find, you know, lay people that are employed in the Bay Area that would want to volunteer. I was like, brilliant. I went to the pastor's meeting at Coco's and my husband had just graduated from Baylor and he was there with his dad, who was a Southern Baptist pastor in the area. And his dad had said, hey, you want to have a free lunch? you know, meet all the the old guys that he had grown up knowing. And he was like, sure. So he walked in and I was like, well, hello. <laughs> and, you know, we just instantly clicked. He volunteered in my ministry at Stanford and led worship and discipled the guys. And uh, we dated for maybe... I guess we dated a year and were engaged a month or two and got married in the Bowman Grove at Stanford University. So that was 31 years ago. So if you're going to give tips to people about how to meet a spouse, getting into oh. ministry and serving, serving the Lord together would be a great way, right? You know, it's, I mean, you say that smiling, but a hundred percent, like, well, I say it because that's how I met my husband. So oh, that's oh, good. <laughs> I didn't feel like I could really see someone's character in the whole like dating scene. I Absolutely. That was what I felt too. Put on. And so to work together and minister together, I felt like we really saw each other's heart. Yeah. Yeah. That was the thing that got me because I had started a ministry to nursing homes when I was in the choir and I, I invited people to you know, join me for a meeting afterwards and say, come on and you know, let's put this together and see if we can put together a ministry to go sing at the nursing homes, you know, sing hymns and that kind of thing. And maybe 15 people gathered around and one of them was my, my soon to be husband. Um, he hmm. piped up, I, I didn't know him, but he piped up and he said, I think this is a great idea, but I think you should also have a message and a prayer. And I said, okay, that's your job. Now let's get on to the other things, you know. And so we went once a month and we'd all go out for lunch together. And then we would go sing at the nursing home. And over the months, I got to see his heart when he was talking to these elderly people, you know, just made a remarkable impression on me that here is a real authentic human being that really loves people. And so maybe six, eight months down the road, he started pursuing me and, uh, it was like, yeah, yeah, this is what I want. So let's go. Yeah, <laughs> that's full, <beautiful>. full send. <laughs> that's beautiful. That's so good. Yeah. So, so you met your husband and then you got married and now you have how many children? We have four. Oh, four wow. Amazing human beings. So Miranda's 26, I think. Is that right? Gosh. Ugh. 
Uh, Nicole's 25, Brooks 23, and Cooper is 20, turning 21 very soon. So at one point you had three of them in college at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. Which that's nothing compared to having four of them, you know, under the age of seven. Yeah. So those were crazy days. And I I just have so much compassion for young moms of just like, man, there's just years, it feels like where you just feel like, you know, you're so sleep deprived, you're just crazy almost. And you have this incredibly important job of raising these children. And, you know, you can't get a shower you know, or go to the bathroom by yourself and you go outside and you find out later, you know, you had oatmeal smeared in your hair and it's just, <laughs> it's, it's a wild time. I thought, um, very challenging. And so I see young moms today. Um, and I feel like there's more pressure today of, you know, doing it perfectly, you know, um, just that everyone's watching and everyone's posting pictures of their perfectly, you know, pottery barn put together children and their space. And there's so much, um, I think, in social media that just puts a lot of pressure on moms now. So yeah. I'm glad I didn't have that to deal with because it's I think it's a hard, hard enough role on its own. Yeah, for sure. And the perfect Instagram picture does not make for a perfect family. <laughs> no, no, ma'am. Because <clears throat> I mean, I, I, I guess my biggest advice to young parents would be try to plan your life so that you're never in a hurry. Because anytime you have to be in a hurry to get somewhere, that's exactly the moment that either someone will have an accident and you have to change a diaper or or somebody will decide that they're going to have a little bit of a hissy fit or, you know, I think that they can sense your, your energy. And if your energy gets frantic because you're, you're late and you're trying to get someplace, it just creates all this havoc in the household. hundred percent. I know a young mom that, you know, like what you're saying, you watch people make decisions actually around that. And I, I knew a young mom that she really cleared her calendar, you know, and she wasn't going to be driving frantically from soccer to ballet to, you know, violin and all of this. She very carefully chose their activities. And then she really cleared her social calendar to have a peaceful, mindful, intentional family. Um, and I think she stands out as being uh, unusual. Well, and I'm sure that what happens is people think, well, I don't want to stop living my life. But if, if you could just keep in mind that this is a season, it's a fairly short season in life, really. And, and if you can do things in a reasonable, peaceful manner during that season, it's going to pay off so many dividends later on. Yeah. And uh yeah. And then you still you still have your life. You still have time. And then you raise up these children and they get to be your friends. And you know, it's Absolutely. such a beautiful thing, right? Yeah. 
it's hard to, um, when you're in it, it's hard to deny self. You know, I, I wrote about this in my book of just feeling like I would pay a hundred dollars to go to Starbucks alone. You know, <laughs> like that's, that was all, you know, you're just like crawling to get there. And now, you know, now I would pay my kids a hundred dollars to go to Starbucks with me, you know, that it's just such a delightful time to be with them now. So yeah. it's a short season, but it's, uh, it really, I, I think you really find out what you're made of and are you able to deny yourself and to seek the well-being, you know, of another person. Well, so what was it that led you to write this book? <laughs> oh, um, I have always felt like that I was supposed to write a book ever since I was a young like a teenager. So it's always been there. Anytime that I've had like prophetic words spoken over me, you know, they'll say something like, you will write a book someday. And I'm just like, oh. okay. So it's always been there. I, I wonder if God hides part of our destiny, you know, in our hearts to be discovered. And there are little clues along the way that when we come upon it, we just know, we know that we know that we know that that's a part of our plan. So I knew I, I had it out there in the future, but I was working at Stanford in, in ministry and loving it. Uh, I really thought, man, I, I hope I'm going to be on this campus till I'm, you know, 60 years old. Oh, you know, I was sitting under a tree talking about faith with students like that was my dream to have that kind of longevity uh, on campus. And one morning I woke up um, and I felt that God just said, that's it. You're done. And, you know, I think you're going to start writing. And so I was like, wow, okay. And so I, I ended my time at Stanford. Well, Karen, I don't know if you have experience with this, and I don't know how common this is, but I thought if God calls you to do something, it goes well. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Right? <clears throat> and I couldn't vomit a sentence on a page. Like I was like, God, you called me to write. What am I, you know? And I would sit at my laptop and just cry out to God of just, you know, I've read old sermons, old messages that I've given. And there's a lot of hum humanity in them and a lot of me. And I just kind of thought, you know, I really don't want to say anything but what God is saying. So I don't want to put in my my human uh, logic. I, I want to say something that is really what he is saying. And it has that stamp of eternity on it. And I would just sit and nothing would come out. And finally, I went, uh, this went on for months and months. 
I went to a prophetic conference. I walked in two women who have never met me walk up to me and they say, wow, you know, you're really stuck in the weeds. Like you're just trying to kind of whack your way through and you're not getting anywhere and it's frustrating and exhausting, but we just feel like God is going to bring you out into this open space and it's going to be like skipping. It's going to be fun. And, uh, you know, he's giving you a pair of racing tires too. It's going to go fast. And they're like, this is Job 16 something. He's, he has brought you to an, a, a, a table abundantly filled with food. He has released you from the jaws of destruction. Amen. Uh, yeah, it's that. Amen. Well, they were like, does this mean anything to you? And I'm like, well, bless me. I, I hope you're right. So <laughs> that night I woke up in my hotel at like four or five in the morning. And it was like God dictated two chapters. And so I was just like, oh, thank you, Lord. You know, I, I, it was joy. It was pure joy. It was fun. But after a while, it, it kind of stopped. And again, I'm like, why do you call me to something? And then don't, you know, help me, you know? And I, I know so many people anguish over that sense of, you know, I uh, sense that God's called them to something, but then it's really hard. It's a hard road. And so I think there's that uh, calling to keep praying, keep worshiping, keep believing that God is good. He's not torturing you, you know, and teasing you and so just keep loving him and that something is not right yet in the timing. And, and that if you just keep being faithful, keep seeking, keep knocking, you know, keep showing up, he'll, he'll answer. For me, that happened when a, a man was visiting our house. Um, he was with a nonprofit that we support. And he was just, you know, there to say thank you and stuff. He says to me, so Margaret, you know, what are you doing now that you've retired from Stanford? I was like, well, dude, I'm I'm trying to write, but it's hard. I, I feel like I really need help. And he says, oh, my gosh, you should meet my friend Ivy. She's an editor. She'll only take one or two books a year. Um, but if she chose you, I think you two would love each other. Well, long story short, we adore each other. And she was the, the motivation, the skill set that really helped me to organize, focus, and, and to write a book. So she was a complete godsend. And I saw that kind of thing happen over and over again in the writing process. Same thing with finding my publisher. It was just a complete godsend. Um, the design of my book. So I'll hold it up. So this groovy design, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> a friend had recommended that I meet this guy, Mikey. 
uh, Polana. He's he's a an artist and a designer, and so I'd always thought he's going to do my book cover. And so the first time I talked with him, first time we're on the phone, and he's like, "So you know, he's asked me business questions. What you know, what kind of colors are you thinking? What do you have in mind?" And I start to answer Karen and then God just stopped me. And I said, dude, I think God already gave you a picture of my book. And he stopped and he laughed kind of nervously. And he said, yeah, he did. And then we just both burst out laughing. And there it is. You know, it's just things like like that i think when you rest in the lord when you rest and trust that he has good things for you you know you don't run out ahead and manipulate and strive and compete but you rest in what god is doing and what he's saying to you and you trust that he's going to partner with you um it just works and things like that just happened over and over again. Well, that must have been a great experience. <laughs> would would the experience have been as great if it had just happened immediately when you first started writing? No. You hadn't and, gone through the months and months and months of struggle. Girl, I think that's why like pregnancy like is nine months. Like, you know, if if a baby just came shooting out every <laughs> month or so. I just think we wouldn't have that heart commitment. Um, so the same with my writing. It was a labor of resting and listening and and the excellence, you know, the skill set, like you know, in your work, Karen, you have to show up. You know, you have to learn how to do things and you have to be uncomfortable and you have to just keep showing up and having that diligence and that persistence and then the the worshipful posture. Um, I, I don't think I would have gotten to develop that muscle mm -hmm. if it had been easy peasy. Yeah. Muscle is a good image. Yeah. 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 And it's that a muscle is a good image because you can also overextend muscles and in uh, you can overdo. And so I mean, that's just a good illustration all the way around, I think. Hmm. Yeah. So the whole process was a process of waiting and trusting and uh, and then being there so that when the when the moment came, you were available. Yeah, that's really the right way to to say it. And to also to write in, I'm trying to think of the best way to say it, but I think if we really are listening to God and walking with him actively, then a lot of times we don't realize the significance of what we're doing and what we're saying. And I've seen this in a number of your shows where you find out later all the many connections that are there. But as you're speaking, you don't know them. You don't know all the connections. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. 
Yeah, I mean, I, that that's certainly happened with conversations that I've had, and it's happened with uh, sometimes I'll, this is really, I mean, this is weird, but some days I'll just kind of follow the YouTube algorithm and just play whatever shows up on there. And sometimes they can be randomly distributed. You know, here's a mathematics video, and here's a philosophy video, and here's a a physics video and maybe there's some sort of evolutionary biology video or something and they have no connection whatever and then all of a sudden this thread will just pop into my head oh it was that and that and that and that and that together mean this and and it's it's like some kind of thing that just happens and and then but the challenge for me is that i'm not as diligent as i should be because sometimes that thought will come to me when i'm out walking and I should race home or carry a notebook with me or something. <laughs> and and even once you write the idea down, then you have to go back and you have to clip the pieces out of all the videos. And then you have to transcribe all those pieces and then try to make some kind of sense out of it. And honestly, five, six, seven times out of 10, I just am not at a moment when I can take that time to do that. And so it just gets lost. But it's a beautiful thing when it happens. Right. Yeah. Because... It's like, where did these videos come from? I didn't plan them. And why did I have this particular day to be watching them? Because different videos come in every day, you know. <laughs> so and it's like um, a breadcrumb trail almost. That I, I was watching like. a, a philosophy video this morning. And the um, professor, I really like him, Arthur Holmes. He's just a wonderful teacher. He's passed away now, but he was the philosophy teacher at uh, Wheaton College for many years. They put all his old lectures from the, I think from the 60s or 70s. They've gotten them out of the film archives and put them all on YouTube. So they're just amazing. Anyway, he was doing a, an episode on Whitehead's philosophy. And he talked about this idea that one of the things Whitehead agreed with the early philosophers, you know, Aristotle and those guys, what he agreed with them about was this idea that possibilities have an existence, right? Just in the same way that ideas exist or that form exists, possibilities also exist. And so to me, what that says is that a part of our life with God is to be in a space where we're open to the possibilities that he shows to us. Because, you know, like Mozart always said that a symphony would come into his mind complete in one flash, the whole symphony would be there. And then it would take him time to write it all down and, and you know, put, put out all the arrangements for all the different instruments. Maybe that would take some time, but the symphony in its completeness was there from the beginning. That's one of those possibilities that just exists out there in the universe in the same way that ma mathematical discoveries exist out there. So it, it sounds to me as though you had this call to write this book, but the, the possibilities were waiting for you to be in the right frame to where you, you were open to it. And then when, it, when you were right, then it came in and you were able to write it down. Yes. And, you know, I don't know if you ever think about like the universe as far as a law of partnerships. So I, I tend to think so trying to think how to, how to put it, but in any day we can partner 
with fear, you know, hold hands with fear and dread or anxiety and, and it will take us where it's going or we can partner, we can hold hands with faith, with hope, with love, with compassion. And, and that will bring in us and around us a whole different scenario. So I tend to think um, in a spiritual realm, you know, there's, there's God and there's Satan. And I think that the devil always takes more ground than we ever intend to give. So I don't think he's a gentleman in any way, like takes, <laughs> takes more ground than you ever meant to, to have happen, um, stays longer, makes a mess kind of thing. But I, I do think about the Lord, everything that I read in scripture is that he is a gentleman in that he has the power and the authority and yet he says it's your choice you know you it's your choice if you want to join me or not he, he doesn't force himself upon us and so i can choose to hold hands with him um, throughout a day and that choice, that partnership brings just a whole different opportunity and a whole different experience. So I would say a lot of, you know, if you and I were to really look at our days, um, there's just a number of partnerships. And it's, I don't know that time and habit necessarily make them easier, but I think every day, you know, it's a choice to wake up and, and to say, gosh, I am going to pour love out. I'm just going to shoot it out of my eyeballs. You know, I'm going to love every person in front of me. That's my goal. And one thing I, I taught the kids when they were young, there's a difference between a hope and a goal. So, you know, and I saw this happen when my kids were little, I had a goal to sleep through the night and everybody was dorking up my goal, you know, and our natural response, if somebody blocks our goal, there's anger, there's frustration. If someone blocks your goal, whatever it is, it is a, we're hardwired to be frustrated and angry with that block. And so to realize I can hope it's, it's really a more accurate language to say, I hope I can sleep through the night. But my goal, what is my goal? A goal is the thing only between me and God. No one else can impact it. So my goal is to be a godly mom in the middle of the night. Nobody can make me otherwise. That's just between me and him. Now, yes, I hope I sleep can sleep through the night, but my goal is that I'd be a godly mom, a godly wife, even if I'm sleep deprived. So I've seen that partnership play out, that understanding of um, throughout a day of, you know, what's really my goal here? You know, 
it's to love the person in front of me and to represent, to represent Christ in every relationship. So no one can make me do otherwise. It's between me and him. You know, now I can have hopes like, you know, gosh, I hope my family appreciates me or I hope the, you know, the clerk at the store is polite to me or, you know, whatever kind of hopes you have of getting through life easily. (laughs) But the goal is something so much more profound. And that's where I feel like uh, the real stuff happens of deciding what's my goal here? You know, what's my goal driving these kids to school? You know, is it to get there on time? Damn it. (laughs) You know, (laughs) or is it to really be a loving and safe parent? So I can hope we get there on time. But my goal, something that no one else can alter is, you know, that I would be this loving, uh, compassionate person. Does, Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts going on in my head, and I'm not sure that they're all worth exploring. But but the thought that came to me right at the end there was um, when you were talking about the goal of getting the kids to school on time or the the goal of, of being a loving, godly parent while you're getting the kids to school on time, what came to my mind was one of the things I learned when my daughter was really little from the mom's pastor at the church, which I thought was so good. And that is your goal is not to be, not to raise godly children. Your goal is to be a godly parent, to be a godly mom, to be the mom that the Lord would want you to be, you know, to be a mother of love and care and nurture. And so you're not trying to form these children in a particular way. You're just trying to be a particular kind of person. And then through that, you're representing Christ to your children. And, and, and you hope that they will grow up and have that same faith and that same belief, but there's nothing you can do to force that on a person. And anytime you try to force something on another person, what you're really doing is just grinding down the relationship and damaging any hope for future conversation about it. So that's right. And your own natural response is going to be anger and frustration. So mm-hmm. I, I mean, I literally, so you know, I found myself thinking, I have a goal that we have a happy, peaceful family. And darn it, if all those people were not messing up my goal by not being happy and peaceful. <laughs> so every it time it messes up with your own goal to be a happy, peaceful person. Right? <laughs> and so I realized, yeah, that's a hope. You know, you can work toward your hopes and and you can have that but what's the goal so i can't make my family be you know this happy peaceful family the only thing that i can control is who i am and really getting clear what's my goal you know that yeah i would be a joyful um winsome mom and and a beautiful wife to my husband you know, and 
no one else, no one can make me not do that. It's always my choice. Mm -hmm. So you want to break down the, the chapters in your book? Yeah. <laughs> is there is there a thematic narrative narrative from beginning to end or are, the, are they in sections or you know um it is really in three sections so i start with what does it look like to create a culture um that of honor love and compassion starting kind of like a concentric circle starting with yourself so uh, I think probably the chapter that I've gotten the most, you know, feedback and comments and people resonating is that the voice within my own head, within our own mind has to be gracious, right? So creating a culture of honor, love and compassion starts with what we say to ourselves, and I think for women, especially, uh, there's a lot of negative self-talk and uh, shaming. You know, I talked in the book of a story about that I used to have a picture. I had a very unflattering picture of myself that I put on my refrigerator and I wrote wide load, Maggie, <laughs> you know, like who needs that kind of abuse, you know, so it's just this sense of if I'm going to be gracious um, and create a culture around me that's honoring and loving and full of compassion, I can't be talking trash to myself and about myself. So that chapter um, I've, I've heard from, especially, you know, college, but I, it's surprising the people that really resonate, I think, with my book are college age and then young moms. But I've been surprised at even, you know, men and women in their 50s, 60s that are like, gosh, yeah, this so spoke to me in various ways. I do have a chapter about caregiving and that so many of us will be in a position of having to take care of our parents. And so what does that look like in creating a culture of honor, love, and compassion? Um, and really talk about um, my husband's dad, the pastor, Drew Allen, um, had cancer and, you know, we got to spend a year almost a year with him, just taking care of him and being a part of his um, more day-to-day -day kind of life. And just the experiences of that really notified me of, gosh, there's a choice to be gracious and kind and create this culture in a very difficult, painful season and what that looks like. Um, so I start with the inner kind of work of yourself, your spouse, your children. What does it look like to be an adult child? You know, how do we uh, build honor toward our parents once we're adults? And, and then I move outward to more um, 
external relationships like how do you host what does hospitality look like um in california we don't do much of that i think of opening up our homes and so i talk about that in the book and and just how to how we interact with even strangers so i find it is um, kind of unusual that people our age um, are actively talking just to people we don't know, to strangers, to share good news, to create a culture uh, in every circle. So whether you work out at the YMCA or you're eating, you know, we eat at La Cueva every, <laughs> practically every three days. And so, you know, how do you create a culture in the places that you frequent? Um, and how do you share the gospel? You know, I think about, I'm so thankful someone came to my door and gave me a New Testament. I'm so thankful that you know, my science teacher had the boldness to say, there's a God in heaven who loves you. Um, I don't see that information being put out very often in personal ways. So in my book, I talk about that. Well, I'd like to dig a little bit deeper on one thing that you said, because um, <clears throat> it's a it's a personal question for me. When you're in a situation like, for example, if you're caring for somebody or if you are, um, if you've been asked to do some difficult things, but you want to be the loving, caring, nurturing person in that difficult situation, do you find that you have to do a mental battle during that time period when you're, I mean, that there are times when either you're tired or or somebody has said something very irritating or they've triggered some aspect of your life, you know, and, and inside your head, you're just feeling like, I feel like I'm going to explode. I, you know, I, I can't believe you said that. Or um, maybe inside your head, you're just feeling like, why did I get myself into this? And yet on the outside, you still want to carry on this, so I guess what I'm saying is we hear so much talk about authenticity now. <laughs> um, how would you speak to people about that kind of internal battle and how to manage that internal battle while still being obedient to the external calling, I guess is what I'm saying. It's, it's a great question and it's very real. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit from page 107. Um, here are some practical tips for your job as a gracious caregiver. Um, follow the adage, put the oxygen mask on yourself first before helping others. And most caregiving is vital and urgent and can be a life or death situation. However, it's not sustainable to sacrifice your mental and physical health to care for another long-term. 
caregivers often battle exhaustion and discouragement, and we all need gulps of fresh air to make it through tough times. So my friend, take care of yourself as you care for others. And this is vital. Um, um, I, the second point I said, remember the role of savior is already filled. <laughs> <laughs> yes, your role in caregiving is important, but you are not Jesus Christ or the Holy Spirit. You aren't even Buddha. <laughs> to be clear. So you are a human being caring for another human being. And that's all. And we get so immersed in the intensely dramatic situations revolving around keeping another human alive, that we lose perspective. And then I talk about uh, Moses with his father in law, Jethro, that, you know, he was told what you're doing is not good. It's too heavy. You can't do it alone. And, you know, kind of talks to him about not trying to be the savior and finding help, getting, getting help. Um, one of the things that I said in this chapter, I've gotten a lot of feedback on, and it's this one. The third point was to nurture your hopefulness and faith. Guard that tiny flame of faith. You and only you manage your hope and your faith levels. If you are feeding your spirit on Grey's Anatomy and other medical dramas, your faith level will take a hit. And so encourage yourself in the Lord so that you can offer what your patient longs for, which is a refreshing drink of hope and love and power. Your patient needs to hear what God is saying to you and for you to share that perspective. Don't let anything distract from that ministry. So I just found that caregiving is such a difficult space and you have to take breaks. And the same thing with parenting. It's the same issue when you're exhausted and discouraged and, you know, feeling frustrated and just worn out. You have to learn how to encourage yourself in the Lord. So as a, as a parent, you know, with young kids, I would find myself, you know, reaching for that glass of wine. You know, I'd tell my husband, dude, if you don't get home soon, I'm going to start drinking. And, you know, we'd laugh and stuff. But I was looking, I was reaching for comfort and the glass of wine doesn't deliver it. And I retail shopping or even like I joked about going to Starbucks. That's not what's going to necessarily fill my hope and my soul to continue the hard work. So in caregiving, when you're discouraged, yes, we have boundaries and we realize, you know, this isn't good for anyone. If I'm like absolutely going crazy, losing my mind here. So you have boundaries in place and you realize you're not the savior, 
but it's also managing your own hope and your own level of encouragement and knowing where to get that and where not to go. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, no, it does. Um, I guess my mind was just playing with that verse. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. So um, I guess part of managing your hope is recognizing that there is a substantial reality. There is a substantial truth that is possible. And um, yes. So, so you have to recognize that it's, I guess a lot of people just think, oh yeah, this is all pie in the sky by and by. And, you know, that's all nice talk and everything, but, but what really happens when the rubber hits the road, you know, but what really happens when the rubber hits the road is that if you have practiced that aspect of hope and recognizing that <clears throat> there are real possibilities that are available to you. <clears throat> but but that requires the faith to believe that that hope can become a truly substantive reality. I'm trying, to think of an, I'm trying to think of an example. Um, well, I've got one. If yeah, I have, here's a real simple. Here's a real simple. Five. Yes. Well, yesterday I was asked to to do a job <clears throat> for somebody, and I said yes to it. So I mean, it's all on me. I said yes. But it was a very taxing job, and I needed to do I needed to do a lot of sewing. So I get out my trusty sewing machine, and I I get started. It takes a while to get started, but once I got started, you know it's going pretty well. And then then the machine stopped. I had I run into a snag, but I was on a time schedule. I had to be done by three o'clock yesterday, and uh, I wrestled with it for quite some time, and then finally I just stopped and I said. Lord, I really want to complete this task. I can't complete this task without some help on this machine. <laughs> and I got it going again. So then a little while later, the fabric starts to snag. And I realized, oh, my goodness, the needle is dull. I need to switch out needles. Do I even have a needle at home? I don't have time to run to the store and get one. So I went to my cupboard. Sure enough, I had some needles. How do I get the needle back in? You know, I'm trying to I finally got the needle back in. But then when I started to sew again, the needle was not going through the hole. It was hitting the metal. What am I going to do? I finally bent it into place so it would go down through the hole where it should be going down. Then I had to thread the needle. But my eyes aren't good enough to see, to get this thread through. The... <laughs> so I'm in there like this for <laughs> probably a good, uh, I would say, 30 minutes. I'm struggling to thread this needle. Wow. And then I thought, I'm not going to finish in time. I only have 30 minutes left. I still have two panels to go. And then I remembered, Lord Jesus, <laughs> I need help to thread this needle. And the very next time the thread went through the hole. Come on. I'm not kidding. That's awesome. Now, I could say that's just a coincidence. I could, or I could believe. He is there for you when you ask. But as long as you're willing to struggle, 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 struggle on your own, you know. So I, I, and I finished that. and I was able to finish without being all 
angry and frustrated at the person who had asked me to do it. And I was able to just hand them over when they, when they say, oh, I hope it wasn't too much trouble. I could say, you know, I'm, I'm just happy that I could do this for you and then wow. be done with it, you know, That's but that, awesome. that, and, and I'm not saying I can always do that, but, but inside my head, a lot of the time I was working on it, I was having this mental battle. Oh, I can't believe I'm spending my whole day doing this. And why did I say yes? And that battle is going on at the same time that this other part of me is wanting to be a servant, wanting to do the loving thing. And, the struggle um, is real. The struggle is real. Yeah. And I think the real discipline that we all, you know, will spend our whole lives, you know, working toward is that discipline of recognizing it is not helpful at all to allow that voice, you know, that like, you idiot, you know, like, why did you say yes to this? You know, like, what was I thinking? And, and, oh, I'm not good at sewing or whatever kind of little track goes in your head. It's not helpful. Yeah. And so the discipline to replace those thoughts and to say, you know what, God, thank you so much that I get to serve this person in this way. And you, I need your help. You know, I'm, and you're humbling yourself and you're just saying, I need help. And you got to see a miracle because you asked, you yeah, know. And I, I, I would have seen the miracle much earlier if I had asked earlier. And if I had been <laughs> in that, you know, Typically, I try to be in that state where I remember when things start going hard, that this is an opportunity to to um, recognize that God's goodness is in this, too, even in the hard things. Right. Yes. But I just wasn't in that mental space yesterday until it got really hard and it got like, I'm not going to finish. <laughs> and then when it got to that point, then I was willing to say, oh, OK, I need help. There is a God. I am not him. And yes. um, how I think John Ortberg always says, I can't, but he can. And I think I'll let him. Yes. It's yeah. so good. Yeah. I was going to read uh, John, uh, sorry, James 5 says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. I think somebody prayed that in California. But the point is that our prayers are powerful and they have a, pur a purpose. And realizing, you know, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. You know, he wasn't some special DNA and to realize our prayers make a difference. I, I think the enemy of your soul does not want you to believe that. Wants you to think, oh, you're just talking to the ceiling. It doesn't matter. But I, I look back, um, so many prayers. I think our prayers have a very long shelf life. So things we might have prayed a long time ago still exist and that God is answering them. Um, I had one happen last week that was astonishing to me. Um, when I was a new Christian, 
I remember reading the Beatitudes with a girlfriend. We, she was teaching me how to have a quiet time in the morning. And we were 17. She would come over to my house before she went to work. This in the summer. And we would just read the Bible together. And we're going through the Beatitudes, Matthew 5. Um, and I remember really resonating with the one that says, um, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. And coming from a non-Christian background, I so hungered for righteousness. You know, I mean, I had just such rough edges and a whole worldview that was upside down and behaviors that were just out and, you know, not in the good girl land. And uh, I so hungered to be right with God and to be a righteous person and prayed that, you know, and just last week, uh, I was with all the, all of my family were out on a houseboat on Shasta Lake. And I came across the Beatitudes and it was like the Lord just showed me in a flash that prayer has been answered, Margaret. And I just had such a sweet assurance that, yeah, I'm a righteous woman you know, I am, I am a godly woman that I'm a blessing to my children and to my friends and the people that know me. I'm so thankful that my children don't have to be ashamed or embarrassed of me, you know, because I didn't hunger and thirst for God's friendship and righteousness, you know, and he just showed me, yeah, that one has been answered. And it was just such a sweet realization that things I prayed years and years ago, God's still answering. That's great. It makes me think about, I think it was uh, Hudson Taylor when he was in China mm -hmm. teaching there. Um, he used to use the Chinese characters as a way of teaching them about God's eternal truth. Um, when I read about this, I thought, wow. That's really true because at the Tower of Babel, when all the languages were separated and they each went their own way, they carried the truth with them. The truth might have gotten twisted a little bit, maybe a little bit upside down. There might have been some changes made to the truth over time, but the truth went with them. And so some of that truth is still hidden in those cultures. And so there's this Chinese character that he taught them about, which is a Chinese character for righteousness, um, which is used in both Japanese and Chinese. And <clears throat> it's made up of two parts. You know, characters are often made up either top and bottom or left and right, or then four quadrants. But this was a two-parter. On the top is the character for lamb. And on the bottom is the character for me. So righteousness is lamb over me. And then he would use that to teach them the gospel. And what it really means to be righteous is to me hidden under Christ yeah, and, and let so him good. Lord over you. Right. And that is so good. Yeah. So um, 
I also wanted to ask you, when you were in high school and you started reading the Bible for the first time and you saw these scriptures about Christ and, and you really wanted that, you were thirsty for that. But there's also scriptures in there about the enemy of your soul that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. When you were 16, 17 years old, how did you react to that? I mean, didn't that seem weird to you that people are talking about um, these uh, other powers? <laughs> <clears throat> Karen, I, um, I think only people that have been kind of insulated in the church struggle with that thought. Because if you've lived out from under the goodness of God, nobody has to convince you that there's an enemy of your soul. You know, every time you turn around, there is addiction, there's horrible decisions to make, there's abuse, there's predatory behaviors, there's there's so much uh, wickedness in the world. I don't think anyone has to be convinced of that. Um, I think when we've been in church for so long and everything gets pretty vanilla, um, (laughs) pretty insulated that we forget, um, man, there is an enemy who is, you know, he wants to, to kill you and destroy your life. You know, like God has a plan for your life. Well, you've got somebody that wants to make sure that plan never happens. And uh, you have your own bent toward uh, just self-centeredness, you know. So, I mean, I read things that I remember just being astonished, like, what? You know, like, this is true. Like, miracles were very, you know, coming from a scientific background, to realize like, wow, all the laws of physics and, you know, all of that can be thrown out, it seems, and that there really are miracles and there's healing and there's transformation and things that just don't make sense. Um, That was a big one. And honestly, I mean, this is, I don't know if this is funny or not, but I had walked with God for probably 20 years before. I mean, I had, I had kids and was a minister at Stanford. And I came to this realization that God, I release to you my right to understand So I'm giving up this idol that everything has to make sense, that everything has to be in this like logical, linear fashion. And that was so huge for me, Karen. It's just to release that I I give up and to tell God, you have my permission to not make sense. (laughs) Right? But it's it's such a huge uh, step. I think we all have to come to that place where we can say to God, uh, 
I give, I release my rights to, to understand and for this to all be neat and tidy and to make sense. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can astound me and confuse me and uh, not make sense. Um, a recent example of that, that to me was so touching, Bill Johnson, a pastor at Bethel Church in Reading, his wife, Benny, just died recently of cancer. And Bethel is a house where people go to get healed. Like there are thousands and thousands of recorded miracles of healing that have taken place under Bill's hand and under his leadership. But his wife died um, after a battle with cancer and wasn't able to be healed. And his first sermon uh, back, you know, after she had passed away was, God is still good, even though I don't understand. Like, I do not understand why, you know, a thousand people can walk through here and get healed. And my, you know, wife, my dear person who's so faithful to God and we've prayed and prayed over isn't healed. So, you know, we go back to what we know. We know that he's good. He's good all the time, even when it doesn't make sense. That's, that's the decision I had to come to back in 1986. And uh, for me, it's a great lens through which to see everything because you really get grounded. You can get kind of off base. You can go wandering around someplace and, and why did this happen? And this is so confusing. And then you remember, well, if I start from the premise that God is good, what might be happening here? You know, what might be happening here is that that he loves me and he is teaching me something for my good and for my benefit and for the benefit of others. And, and even if I can't see that, I can pan out a little bit and say, well, my lifetime isn't all there is. There's other people involved here and it may be something that's good in their lifetime or for, for them that God is doing. I'm not the center of the universe. That's a hard one to remember. I'd rather be the <laughs> Say center. Say that again. <laughs> I'm not the center of the universe. <laughs> what? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, so um, I don't want to tread on any sore spots or anything, but this all started with you saying that you were raised in a family where your mother and father were both atheists, and then you became a Christian, and their hair stood on end. And what happened with that whole family relationship? Oh, so beautiful. I got to lead my mom to Christ um, when I was in high school. And it was really the most beautiful thing I would say in her life. Um, she died when I was 25. And so from 12, when I was 12 to 25, that whole span, she was battling um, cancer in various forms. And to come to know the Lord and to have the fellowship of the spirit within her and also the fellowship of, you know, just lovely, lovely women around her that, you know, were friends and loved her. Um, I would say that's just one of the greatest 
joys and privileges of my life. And it was just by being transparent, by just saying, wow, mom, I just read this today in the Bible. Isn't this cool? And we would start reading the Bible. And then, you know, she started going to church with me and she was born again and baptized. And it was a beautiful thing. Interesting on my dad, my dad um, remained an atheist. He was always, you know, you do you very, you know, would never put her down for becoming a Christian. Um, the one, I guess, hopeful note I would say about my dad, um, well, several, the last time I saw him in the hospital, he was talking about uh, like his injury and that he really didn't have any kind of pain and that he really doesn't feel much pain. And I said, dad, do you feel much joy? So I understand you don't feel pain, but on the other side, do you experience joy? And he just started crying and it looked like he'd been gut punched of just like, no, he said, no, I, I haven't really experienced joy and I've never known the purpose of my life. And it was very sobering, but when I shared the gospel, he said, you know, I'm so sorry. It's like you're telling me fairy tales. I just can't believe. It, it's like you're talking about, you know, unicorns and fairies. And he was sad, you know, I mean, I, I'm sure there was a lot of motivations there, but he was just like, I just can't. And then he called me, I would say it was probably two days before he died. And when I answered the phone and we were talking, he all of a sudden he blurted, Margaret, he said, your voice is so melodious. It's so beautiful. Gosh, you know, it's just like bringing me to tears. It's so beautiful. And I was like, well, dad, that must be the, <laughs> you know, that must be the drugs talking. Cause I don't, you know, I just kind of laughed it off. Um, I think that when we can recognize beauty and when we're touched by beauty, that's God at work. So I feel that God was at work in him. And then the beautiful thing to me, the one part of my appearance and being that I've always struggled with is my voice. I've always felt like I kind of have a Mickey Mouse voice and I wish I had a deeper, more authoritative and I wish I could talk <laughs> faster. And um, I, <laughs> is that funny? I realized when he said it and, and then when he passed away, I had received a blessing from my father and that he had blessed my voice. The one thing that, you know, I struggled to like. And so I saw that as a beautiful act of God as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, none of us know what kind of work God is doing inside every person. Someday I, I, I want to tell the story of my dad's coming to faith. It's a long story. So not going to do it now, but 
but um, <clears throat> there was the moment when he reached out for communion for the first time after having been a robust atheist his whole life. And, and he reached out for that communion cup and he turned to me and he said, you don't know how many years I've been waiting for this. So all those years that he was openly, visibly, verbally in rebellion, there was something going on inside, which told me that we never know what's happening inside any person. That's right. Yeah. That's, right. That's good. This has been wonderful, Margaret. It's been I fun. Get, I hope we get to talk again soon. And oh, what's the name of your YouTube channel going to be when you get started? Oh, Karen. <laughs> Oh, you've got me. I hope you have some ideas. So you'll have to give me some advice on that. You know, I do have such a desire to just, I feel like, you know, at our age, I feel like I've learned a lot of great lessons with God and have just built the muscle of walking with him. And so that's really my hope for the channel is to be able to release that uh, into the airwaves of, you know, it's a beautiful thing to walk with God and it's worth it. I would say to any young person right now trying to, to say, oh, there's so many choices in front of me. I would say it is worth it to lock eyes with Jesus, to trust him, to ask him into your life. And it will make all the difference in the world. So that is something I'm very eager um, to to put out into the airwaves. Well, I can't wait until you get started. A couple of names popped into my head right away. Adventures, oh, good. Adventures in Hope. Nice. Um, hope versus goals or hope and goals or something like that. Um, and Adventures in Honor. Mm, that's good. Oh. But I'm sure there are a lot of, maybe people will put in their comments what they think you might. Oh, that would be <laughs> fabulous. I, I've had a number of people tell me that they wish there were more women in this kind of little corner of the internet because there aren't very many women's voices here. So you will be much appreciated when you join us. And uh, recently we lost a beloved woman's voice here named Mary Cohen. I did a memorial tribute to her last week, but um, she had such a strong voice knowing exactly where where her life was headed in Jesus and really wanting to take as many people with as she could, you know, so um, we need your voice. Wow. So I'm glad you're going to get started. Thank you so much. You have been a blessing to me and an honor, um, just have put honor toward me that I really appreciate. I love how you make everyone comfortable and feel at home. Thank you. I'm going to try in honor of Mary, I'm going to try to do her sign off right now, if I can remember how it goes. So um, until we meet again, remember that you are responsible and I am too. And together we are making the world. Amen. Goodbye, Mary. Until we meet again. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Bye-bye, Margaret.